Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Marty Willis, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at TIAA, and also cancer, I don't want to say survivor, I'm going to say thriver, and you'll hear why. In this episode, we discuss Marty's journey with a successful career in the investment business for over 30 years. And she shares the early days where she would be driving around with milk carts filled with marketing brochures and what it was like to be one of the first female wholesalers, transitioning to where she is today, leading the marketing, branding, and corporate communications teams across TIAA and Nuveen. I loved learning about how Marty shapes not only education and awareness, but also the planning for future retirees who have no idea that nearly 40% of retirees may run out of money. Really interesting conversation. Marty is without a doubt one of the most positive people I've ever encountered. And it's intentional. We talk about the choice, the choice to be positive and the choice to move forward. Now, here's a woman who took a newer job just a few years ago to expand her knowledge and take on a new challenge because she just didn't want to be comfortable at her old firm. She wanted to take that risk and try something different. Marty encourages me to not be afraid and to take risks and try new things. It's this positive mindset that helped as she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer at the start of a new job during COVID. And in typical Marty fashion, she, of course, decides to raise money and awareness for breast cancer as she rode 200 miles during her cancer treatment and raised $50,000 for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Incredible. Please enjoy this interview with the big, the bold, and the brave Marty Willis. Hi, Marty. Welcome to the show. Hi, Yen. How are you? I am good. Thank you now that you're on the show. So thank you for the time. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you are a legend in the business, and I am grateful to have you on. I want to say a big thank you to Chip Roby, one of the best operators in the space out there in asset management. And you know Chip, he's not one for grand superlatives. And so when he told me about your background, and then he said that you inspire him with your abundant energy, your sheer competence, and most of all, he said, your ability to bounce back from adversity, and he said both business and personal, but that you do so without losing focus on what really matters. And for me, hearing that from Chip, I just thought, wow, what incredible praise, but also I couldn't wait for this conversation. So thank you to Chip for that. Well, thanks, Chip, too. He's someone who I admire greatly, and I'm humbled by your comments. So thank you. So I'd love to chat about your impressive career with business strategy, product development, and marketing. But if you don't mind, I like to rewind everyone's highlight reel all the way back and really start with where they grew up. So if you can share with our listeners where that was. Sure. I grew up in Massachusetts in a small town. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. 
My dad was an exporter of educational equipment to countries all around the world, predominantly in the Middle East and Far East. That was in the 70s and 80s. So it was quite unusual. His clients would come visit us occasionally and we'd have Arab sheikhs come in in their headdresses and their robes. And so all of our neighbors kind of looked, what is going on in that house? As they'd see these international travelers come in and out. My dad was an exporter and started his own business and was a risk taker. He started this when his three children were in college and he had to pay college bills. And so he took all of his assets and he invested in his own company. My mom is also an entrepreneur and she did a lot of things at the time when most women did not work. And my mom started a nursery school and the nursery school was a cooperative nursery school. So the parents also helped teach. And it also had scholarships for kids from a local inner city that allowed more diverse students to come to the school. And in addition to that, after she stopped the nursery school, she saw there was a need for more of an artist supply store. She was an artist. So she fulfilled that need and created an artist supply store in the town, which is still to this day in business. So all the artists are quite happy with her little entrepreneurship. So they were both entrepreneurs and they were always thinking about how they could use their talents to improve wherever they were at that time. And one other point, though, they started their lives in Bangkok, Thailand, after they were married. They started in Bangkok when my dad opened up the Navy Exchange in the Korean War. And he opened up the Navy Exchange Commissionary Store while my mom taught English to students at the American School in Bangkok, Thailand. So they had a very exotic life, but we lived in a very simple town that we grew up in. I grew up there, left there, and I've returned and I raised my children in that same town. I love that. Well, I feel like I could unpack just your childhood alone with what you call a simple town, but with a very eclectic and entrepreneurial and international parent figure. And so one of the questions I like to jump to is college. And the reason I jumped to college is because so many, whether it's parents like myself or and also young adults who feel like college is a destination and you're primed to make this life choice of what your major is and what your job's going to be when you're 17 or 18. And what I've realized is most people don't know what that means for them professionally. And so I'd love to hear your process of picking the college you went to and why. When I went to school, I got to say, I wasn't as involved in the process as my children are today. I would say it's a little different. I had a lot of guidance from my parents and my dad, who was in education as an exporter of educational equipment abroad. He really focused on stretching yourself, not only academically, but where you lived. And that I had lived in New England my whole life and that I really should go someplace else and experience a new culture. In addition, I was his only daughter. And I think in his mind, he really hoped that I'd meet a nice Southern gentleman who would take care of his only daughter for the rest of his life. So he encouraged me to look at schools in the South. And that's what I did. And I looked at a bunch of schools. I looked at Vanderbilt, at Davidson, and a smaller school called the University of the South in Tennessee. And I guess I first dealt with some form of rejection. I did not get into my number one school that I wanted to get into. I wanted to get into Davidson. 
and I didn't get in. I got into Vanderbilt and I got into Swanee, the University of the South, the nickname Swanee. And I got into there and I chose that school over Vanderbilt at the time because it was smaller. And I felt like I would be more comfortable there, especially being from so far away that it would feel more welcoming. And so that's where I ended up going to school. And so what was your major? And also, what did you do with that and your first job out of college? My major was English literature. And my first job out of college was finance, financial services. So it kind of didn't really match nicely. It was a little bit of a different, but I was able to use my liberal arts degree to help me understand things, critical thinking, how to communicate that and to simplify. And basically, that's what I've done my entire career, which has been predominantly always in financial services, is to take complex topics and make them easy to understand for people. And doing it through words, through pictures, through storytelling has all been some of the tool set that has enabled me to be successful in financial services. I love that. May I ask what you were thinking in terms of here's your English lit major? And oh, by the way, I'm just going to jump right into finance. How did that happen? My mother couldn't believe that I was going to be in financial services. What I did, though, I wasn't an analyst. I wasn't a portfolio manager. I was on a phone line helping people understand our products. And so I'd answer questions about the products. And I learned the business by doing that. It was a great training. And it really was the beginning of my career. And once I learned that, I was offered a job to go into sales. And so I went into sales and I was actually one of the first female wholesalers at the time. And this firm was based in Boston. I moved back down south. I had a southern territory. I drove a little red Honda Prelude around. And in the trunk of the Honda Prelude, I had milk crates with all my materials and information that I had to give out to people as I met with them. And it was very interesting. It was extremely lonely. I was young. I was probably 24 years old at the time. And I was alone at hotel rooms at night. I was calling on predominantly a male group of people, trying to explain to them about why mutual funds made sense and why they wanted to sell them to their clients. And it was hard. They were who are you, this 24-year-old, telling me at age 50 what I should be selling? It was easier on the phone because they didn't see me. But face-to-face, it was a little more challenging. So I stuck it out for about 18 months, I would say. And I was just really not happy. It was lonely. I didn't have a lot of interaction with other people. And then it didn't have a lot of creativity for me. And that's what I really wanted to do. I've always been a creative person. So I decided I wanted to try marketing. That would be a better use. So I then found a job at Fidelity Investments, which at that point was considered one of the best marketing organizations in financial services. And so I moved back up to Boston and I worked at Fidelity for about 25 years after. Incredible. And so if you don't mind just highlighting that journey there, because 25 years at a place such as Fidelity. Yeah, it was a long time at Fidelity, but it was a place that I really learned the marketing craft. And I always believe you have to have one core capability that you own. And that's really what I learned at Fidelity. 
my success at Fidelity was really driven by my willingness to take risks, to come up with new ways of doing things, thinking about the problem differently, looking at other industries to come up with solutions. And so I was always put on these assignments where we were trying to solve a problem and come up with a different type of answer. And one of the things I did a long time ago, probably 15 years ago, was really how could you sell products differently versus having a face-to-face interaction with someone? And so we'd created a phone team that used data and analytics to help them in terms of targeting more effectively and the types of conversations that they should have with people. And so that was early stages of AI before AI was really big. And we called it database marketing. And it was, and it was all about modeling your tone of voice to mirror whoever you were speaking with. If they spoke fast, you spoke fast. In addition, it was very targeted. We were able to do predictive modeling to know whether or not they were selling more or selling less. And so that was one of the things that was a real differentiator and had a history of just being very creative, leading teams, having them think differently to solve problems. Well, it's funny you mentioned it because it is, to your point, so relevant now when people talk about using data and selling and using the power of psychology and persuasion and, and unpacking that. And so that's super interesting. Right. And you just use different tools today. Social media wasn't a form that now social media is another way of reaching audience. And there's so many more. And so you spent a wonderful time there. What was the catalyst to move from Fidelity to Oppenheimer? When I first joined Fidelity, it was small and it had grown to be a gigantic mutual fund company at that time. And it was becoming more enterprise-like. When Oppenheimer called me to be the CMO and to be part of the executive committee, at Fidelity, there was no CMO and there were multiple different businesses. And so that sounded like kind of a neat opportunity to try And again, this took a little bit, another risk. And that time I had to move to New York. And at that point, my two older children were in college. I still had one child in high school. So I thought, maybe I could try this. And so I got an apartment in New York and I worked in New York pretty much Monday through Friday and came home weekends. And it was a risk, but it was a great, great experience. And I learned so much about a whole different company and how they operate. And if anything, I wish that maybe staying put for 25 years in one company wasn't as good for me in terms of providing me with more learning experiences. Similar to what you mentioned with your dad of saying, try different places, different experiences, and that's part of the education that you would get. And so it sounds like you've learned a ton about both yourself and also Oppenheimer, What was the next step for you? What was the catalyst to saying, okay, let's learn something different? I think one of the things that's been interesting too, is I listened to your podcast series too. A lot of the women had a goal or a dream that they wanted to fulfill. And candidly, I was a little bit nervous about being on your podcast series because I didn't have a big dream or goal. What I've done throughout my whole life is really when opportunities land in my lap is not to be afraid to try them. And that's really how I have lived my life is to try new things and to know that sometimes they don't work out and that's okay. 
but you learn from it and you keep on going. And so Oppenheimer, we had a change of CEOs at the time and new CEO came in and I didn't sense that he valued marketing quite as much. At the same time, I got a call from TIAA to come join them to be the CMO for Nuveen, the asset manager. At that point, it wasn't even called Nuveen. It was called TIA Global Asset Management Firm. And they were looking for someone to come in and to really build the marketing capabilities. They had just acquired all these different asset management firms. They weren't sure exactly how they were going to go to the marketplace. What was the positioning of this new collection of asset management firms? What are they going to be called? And they wanted me to come in and do some of the brand strategy work, the brand architecture, and also to develop a marketing team. And so I joined them about six years ago. I know that you're on the board of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. And there's one interview you did that you had this quote that I loved, and it's, be big, bold, and brave. And it's very simple, but it seems to be your maximum in life of following that curiosity and that drive just to try something new. I love that. So going back to TIAA, it's one of the biggest asset managers in the world. How in the world do you rebrand or relaunch when it is so big? So I'm curious how you do the big and the bold and the brave as it relates to shaping TIAA's message. TIAA is one of the largest asset managers in the world. And they really specialize in retirement for the not-for-profit marketplace. What we offer, what we are really good at, is providing people with guaranteed income. And that is something that many others do not provide. Most retirement providers in the world today are focused on asset accumulation. How much money do I need to have to retire? Well, that's only half of the equation. Of course, you have to save money and grow your assets. But the real trick is, how do you take those assets that often sit in a lot of different accounts? They may sit in taxable accounts, in tax-free investments. How do I take those and pull down from them so that I can maximize and I can make sure I have enough money to last my entire lifetime and I'll never run out? That's hard. And what TIA has is a product that provides people with guaranteed lifetime income. And that really is what makes them unique. And today in this world, we are facing a retirement crisis. 40% of Americans will run out of money. And so from the marketing standpoint for TIAA, we're really focusing on our opportunity of telling this guaranteed lifetime income story and really making sure that's understood across the marketplace, across all demographics. And that includes millennials. And the millennial marketplace is perhaps the toughest nut for us to crack because it's a little fragmented. Telling a millennial about saving for retirement 30 years out or wherever, maybe it's more like 15 years out, is often something they don't really want to listen to. And to be fair, they have a lot of other things that are going on in their lives. And many millennials today have student loan debt that they didn't have, say, 20, 30 years ago. I have so many comments there from the millennials' attention to financial markets. I mean, right now, I don't know if many of them are thinking about retirement when you can get 
millions and billions from crypto in two weeks you know, type of thing. But I'd love to clarify, you made one fact that I thought was so interesting. And in our prior conversation, you had mentioned it. But just the idea that a meaningful amount as a percentage of people run out of money in retirement. Can you expand on that? Because that sounds terrifying. It is terrifying. And people just aren't saving enough. We have an aging population that will be going into retirement. We will have less people in the workforce. We have a social security system that's not sure that it's going to be able to continue in its current format exactly the way it is today. And the biggest issue is people used to have when they were in the workforce, they used to have a pension. It was the liability of the company. The company had a pension and they were saving money for you and putting it aside to give it to you. Many pensions have gone away. And so there are very few that are left. And the beginning of the 401k market, 401ks put the onus on the individuals. You now had to save. And those saving products, 401ks, also allowed you to have access to the money. So many people would go in and say, oh, I need some money. And they almost treated it more like a savings account versus a pension that was before you weren't involved in it. You didn't have to put the money aside. The company did it automatically for you. And so it's almost like your own behavior has caused some of the problems. It's really hard for people to think about how much they have to accumulate. It can be overwhelming. And so then they do nothing. And so with your structures, I mean, so much of what you do is to expand this brand and to make people feel comfortable to learn more because I think investments and finances so complex in many ways that people are intimidated by it. And so to your point, they don't do anything. How do you make it approachable as a brand so that people feel like, oh, I can go here and learn and also grow? But how do you unpack that psychology of building that brand? There is a lot of psychology in this. And people today are looking for companies that are purpose-driven. And TIA has been a purpose-driven company since its founding. When Andrew Carnegie created this company, and he created these products that I'm talking about that give you guaranteed lifetime income. He created them so that teachers could retire with dignity because prior to that, teachers had no pension and they were retiring and they didn't have any money to retire with. And so he did that. And it was a purpose-driven company with a mission of making sure that those who give to others can retire with dignity. And today, this company is still a mission-driven company. We all know the mission. We all work behind it. And in addition to that, we have been very strong in terms of our ESG investing capabilities. We've had over 50 years of investing that way. We're not just all of a sudden talking about ESG. It's core to who we are. And we've also been very strong in diversity, equity, and inclusion as a firm. And so those two capabilities are more values-driven tied to the purpose of who we are. And we use that, those stories about how we invest in ESG, stories about our diversity, equity, inclusion. We use those stories to put out into the marketplace to attract people to us. Because at the end of the day, brands really matter, especially when you're in a tie. People are going to go to the brand that they like more. And today, more and more people are looking for purpose-driven brands. And we just happen to be a purpose-driven brand that's been around for 100 years. 
And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're more relevant in today's market by how we go to the marketplace. So we are starting to use new things like social media, utilizing influencers, doing activations, not just doing the traditional ways of marketing that have worked in the past. And so speaking of the evolution of marketing, how have you seen it from your early days at Fidelity to now here? You'd mentioned a few of the tools in terms of social media and influencers, but what else have you seen in just that overall evolution? Marketing has changed so much. I mean, it used to be brand and advertising, print and TV, and maybe some events along the way. That was what you did. But now what you do is you take someone all the way down the sales funnel from awareness to consideration to starting to go into the purchase likability. And you start to go into the purchase side of it. And you can measure the results, see where people are along the way. Are they engaging with you? And ultimately, you can tie those metrics to what are the outcomes that the business is trying to achieve. And today, unlike years past, you can really understand the effectiveness of your marketing, what's working, and where do you need to spend more to get more of the outcomes that you're trying to achieve as a firm. So the role of a CMO has changed. It's not just a creative role that it used to be. It's creative and it's very analytical. We have data analysts that work with us that measure our numbers every day, tell us how well we're doing. And that is really critical to the job today. There's so much more I could ask you about the marketing job, but then it'll be a five-hour podcast. So I will (laughs) make sure to link your bio and the site in the show notes so that people can learn more. We talked a lot about your professional rise, but one of the things that Chip had mentioned in terms of the reason he's inspired by you is not just your professional competence and getting over some of the adversity there, but also that you were dealt with a very major and difficult battle recently, and that's with cancer. And so can you share your experience there and when did it start and how that's going? Yeah, that was totally unexpected. So I had just got this job as the enterprise CMO at TIAA in July. In September, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer of a very aggressive type of breast cancer called HER2. And I got to say, You're talking to someone who works out every day, eats well, does triathlons, runs half marathons. I've worked out every day my entire life, fitness all the time. I never thought I would be diagnosed with breast cancer, but I think everyone who gets a cancer diagnosis says that. They never thought it would be them. So needless to say, I was really caught off guard and I had just gotten this new job. And so, oh my God, how am I going to deal with it? And then... I was told, what do I have to do to combat that? And so I ended up going through four months of chemo. Then I had surgery. Then I had seven weeks of radiation. And then I had targeted immune therapy. So basically, I went through a year of treatments. I have just finished in September the treatments. I am so happy to say I am cancer-free. I am a cancer thriver, I like to say, instead of survivor. And I'm knocking on wood that it continues, but they say that the prognosis is good and that there's a 96% chance that the cancer will not return. So it was a year of a lot of treatments. It was a year juggling a new job as well. But, you know, I was lucky because I did it under the cover of COVID, I like to say. So I was dealing with Zoom every day. 
So no one could see in the back of my head that I was losing hair back there because I was just dealing with Zoom calls. So it worked out well while I went through it. And then after, in October, it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I said, you know, I think I better tell women to make sure that they get their mammogram appointment. So I wrote a letter to all employees at TIAA. So I told them my story. And I said, just do me a favor. If you skipped your mammogram appointment this year because of COVID, make sure you get that appointment. Well, I got hundreds and hundreds of emails from women who said, you know what? You gave me the nudge. I did miss my mammogram. And so then they said, I rescheduled it. Or they talked about how they had been through breast cancer and their situation or a family member and what they did. But it was that moment of being vulnerable to them that really, I think, inspired people that when you sit at a higher level in a big organization, people think everything's perfect. And they don't think that you might have some challenge that you're dealing with. So that was just incredible to me, the outpouring that I received from all the employees. So it was quite inspiring. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing. And also to the listeners, please either get your mammogram or also for the male listeners, which there's about 50% of them are male listeners. Remind your loved ones to also get a mammogram. Now, did your cancer come up through just a screen when you had an annual mammogram? Here's what happened. So I missed a mammogram because of COVID. And so I actually felt a lump in about July time period. But I thought it was a rib. (laughs) I don't have big breasts. So I thought it was a rib. (laughs) You still couldn't get a mammogram because of COVID. And so then once mammograms became available, I reached out for an appointment. I had my first appointment in September. And then they saw that, oh my gosh, you have a stage three tumor. So they whizzed me right in and I went right into treatments immediately because of the severity of the size of the tumor, where it was located. And the type of breast cancer is one of the fastest growing breast cancers that is in existence. But I had a great oncology team. I want to give them a shout out. Mass General Hospital, they did a fantastic job. They were terrific throughout the whole thing. Really great people. And it opened up my eyes to the whole world of medicine. Because I had never really been sick, I've never been in a hospital other than that babies, it really made me appreciative of what those people go through every day. I have such deep gratitude for them. It's incredible. Well, I could go down and ask you a lot more questions about the cancer route, but maybe I'll pivot now to the questions I ask everyone on the show, really as an extension of what you just said, because I find you and the stories to be so inspiring, but who or what inspires you? I think it really is people who are positive. I think about the world today and I think about where we are as a population across the world. And the world has never been better. More people are not hungry. They have, well, things are very, very good from a lot of parts of the world, more than ever before. Yet we seem to be in a very negative environment where people are constantly thinking about all the problems. That is troubling to me. I think we have a lot to be thankful for. I love to read novels about women leaders. And I often find that most of them are driven by some positiveness of what they believe in. And people follow positivity 
they don't follow negative. And so I guess I like to be around people who think positively. That inspires me, that motivates me. So I, I guess I would just say that category, positive thinkers. I love that. I was going to say, actually, when we we're done recording about how positive you are. I mean, here you're talking about building this fantastic career in finance, which is not easy to do, especially in the early ages where there's not many women in the industry and there's still not as much now, but certainly back then. And then also you survived cancer during COVID. I mean, all these things. And yet your tone has remained upbeat and so positive, which is incredible. And to your point, it's magnetic for those who really seek it. And so that's very inspiring. Have you ever read a book called Factfulness? No. I think you'd enjoy it. But it's this book that Bill Gates had mentioned a few years ago as one of his favorite books of all time. And it's by a doctor named Hans Rosling. And the subtitle alone is 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And he walks through how there's been so much progress in terms of child mortality and how the world is actually thriving. And yet with our negative lens, we're thinking about the bad picture of this malnutrition child somewhere in emerging markets, you know, and so it's a very interesting lens that we're still so hardwired to think negatively, and it takes a proactive effort to be positive. And so whether it's to grow your career or to beat cancer, I think your positive mindset is a huge asset. And so I find that very inspiring. I've always used it in marketing to do positive campaigns versus those that use more fear tactics to get people to take action. But I truly think that people want to follow positive thinking, positive outcomes. I think that's right. You're such a positive person and you faced a fair amount of adversity personally and then certainly with your work, which is a very high impact and demanding job. In moments that you feel either overwhelmed or stressed or feeling at a low, can you share some secrets or how you get out of those? Because it seems like you have the superpower to get out of them faster than others. But what are you thinking about or how do you do that if you can share? I think two things. One is I have a super amount of energy and if I'm in a stressful moment to go out for a walk or a run or to do something, that really helps me to kind of get regrouped, to kind of lose the anxiety of the stress. So that is one thing. And then the other thing is I've kept this mantra about always going forward, that you're going to make mistakes along the way but you can't do anything about it. So angsting about that and getting all upset, why did I do this, did it, I should have done this, or did it, that is just wasted energy. And so I always think about, okay, that happened, now where do I go? So it's always a forward perpetual motion instead of beating myself up about the past. So you've done a lot in your career. You've raised amazing children. You've beaten cancer. What are you most proud of? I would say raising three children. (laughs) That to me gives me, I guess, the greatest joy. When you're doing it, when you're raising kids, you're just trying to make ends meet. You're not thinking about anything. And then now to see them. And all three of my kids have great relationships. They're happy. They're in careers that they're fulfilled in. And I just kind of keep pitching myself. How did we end up this way? You know, how lucky are we? Someone once told me, you rent your title, but your character you own. And I think that's so true, that your character often reflects in terms of how you raise your children. And so I'm just so happy that they have turned out the way they have and that they're happy 
and that we all get along still. There are no family feuds. We were lucky on that front. And I have to say, I owe it to my husband. He was absolutely phenomenal in terms of being extremely supportive of what I did. He worked too, but his work was local. So he had more time with the children, but he really helped us as a family. He kind of was the center of gravity, making sure that all the planets continued in the solar system without crashing into each other. So he was a huge, huge, huge help. I love that. I was just about to ask, what has been the secret then, right? Oh, he's our secret weapon. This guy is so selfless. He puts everyone before himself. In addition, he's a very good read of people and he knows when the things are getting tense and he's funny. And so he'll know how to say a line that just breaks the tension. Everyone laughs and it's over. So we've been very, very fortunate to have him as our (laughs) mediator in many of the family situations. Amazing. Well, one thing, as you know, I ask all my guests about some of their biggest struggles and failures and not to bring it to the negative with the struggles and the failure. You have so much growth in both personal and professional. What is, if you can share one of your most impactful growth moments, which may come from a struggle or bout of adversity, but I would love to hear that if you can share. I think actually the battle with cancer is probably the most humbling thing. Everything else you can deal with, with hard work or facts or influence. But here you were dealing with something that you kind of didn't have control over. Here I've taken care of myself. I've done everything I was supposed to do, but this is out of my control. And that, I think, was very humbling. And I also think you saw a lot of people that were a lot worse off than you. You see that and you go in there and you kind of put your helmet on and say, I'm going to stay positive here. I am not going to go down and start to feel sorry for myself, which could have been very easy to do, just curl up in a ball. So I think that that probably is something that I really grew from. And I also grew by understanding that vulnerability is a really positive thing for people to see that, you know what? You're not superwoman. That's okay. I think people react to that and they feel like you're more approachable as a result of that. So that was my biggest learning from what could be called a failure. It's a bump in the road, right? Exactly. This is a new question that I've asked more recently and was from a guest who suggested that I ask about success and what it means to these profiles who are largely very successful. But what's interesting is in our industry, that is usually quantitatively defined, extra zeros and how many commas you have. But when you think about the time spent in all your life, whether it's parenting, whether it's with your partner, whether it's with work, it changes based on what you were to show someone's data of work time spent. So I'd just love to hear from you. What does success mean for you? We are in an industry that's pretty quantitatively driven, and that does help make life easier on many fronts. But for me, success has always been about a personal happiness, not necessarily monetary, but personal happiness. And I found that where that comes from mainly is where you're making a personal contribution, that you feel value from what you are doing and not monetary. It could be you see a team's success, that they do something collectively together that you didn't think was achievable. Or you help the Girl Scouts of Greater New York 
raise a record-breaking amount of the gala that they did. Your personal contributions really add a benefit to the world in some way, somehow. And that, to me, is, I think, where I would say that you really feel the greatest impact of your success. You go on and you see people that you mentored or you coached, and they take on great big new jobs. And you're like, I was a piece of that. I think that that, for me, is really what success means. And I know that you're very active outside of TIA. You're on the board of Girl Scouts of Greater New York. You're a member of the Women's Forum of New York. And your impact is larger than just your professional impact, which is fantastic. How did you get on the board of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York? Or how did you choose the memberships that you are now aligned with? I have learned over the years about networks. When I first started my career, I thought that was almost being disloyal, (laughs) that I wasn't spending time in my office doing my job and I was spending time out with other people. And that was bad. But over the years, I have really learned that networks matter a lot. And even to this day, I probably am not as good about networking as I should be or could be. But it does help you in lots of ways because you learn about new things. Again, it's this whole thing about expanding your knowledge. And I think you learn from other people. You learn from their experiences. You learn from just meeting them, where they go, what they do. That's something at some point when I stop working here, I really look forward to doing more of that, even more than what I do today, the networking of people. Because I find people are inspiring to me, especially the positive energy that I find from people who think positively. I have to say, the podcast is a selfish project where I get so much inspiration and it keeps me going. And just the idea of networking to meet with people like you and the quote that we've mentioned already, but it's to be big and bold and brave. And that's something I get from you, but also to be positive. And it's a very simple reminder of how powerful that is. And so thank you for that. I would just say one thing, be big, bold, and brave. I always say this to employees. It's really easy to manage your inbox, do all the little things. Oh, I answered all my emails. I did this, 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 this. I did everything on my to-do list, but it really takes courage. And how you get noticed is by thinking about things and doing them differently and solving problems. And sometimes that's hard to do because it means taking a risk and you might fail. But you know what? If you don't do those sort of things, you never really get noticed. You're just kind of, you're a good employee, you're doing a good job, but you're not really making a big difference. Everyone knows the big things that need to get addressed. They know there are big problems, but people don't often want to take them on because they're big. Take a risk, step a little bit out of the box and try something new. And I bet you will not be upset that you did that. And hey, listen, worst thing happens, it doesn't work out, you get a new job, get a new experience, you learn something new, you grow a little bit more. Like your podcast says, you get growth from failure. So it's not the worst thing in the world. And I've lived my life that way by looking at the opportunities that land on my lap and deciding not to be afraid and to go after them. If you could, please be the CMO for Growth From Failure, because the way you described that was so perfect. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks for that. The last question for me is, what's next for Marty Willis? I don't really know yet. I'm so busy here. 
doing my job. But I have a new granddaughter that was just born. So that's exciting for me. I am not sure what's next. Recently, some of the learnings with the cancer is of interest to me. I recently rode in the Pan Mass Challenge with my husband, and we were able to raise over $50,000 for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So that was fun. I'm not sure what's next. I have a feeling it will have something to do in terms of advocacy for breast cancer. I think I will do something eventually with corporate board works, doing some more work there. So just still not quite sure. I don't have it mapped out yet, but I'm thinking about things. Well, thank you so much, Marty. I had a blast in this conversation, and I'm looking forward to hearing and reading all the things you do next. Ian, thank you for this opportunity. I really feel like I have so much to be grateful for, and your podcast really helped me express that even more. So thank you for the moment. 